Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad that we could have this time together. We are continuing our, our series of lessons from the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3. And I've titled this lesson, Opposition to the Kingdom. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And we ask that you would uh, help us as we look at this passage, that you would speak to our hearts in your name. Amen. Back in November, the United States held their election for president. President Trump was facing off against his Democratic challenger, Joe Biden. Now, the election was close, very close, and eventually it came down to four states. And for most of the rest of that week, everyone was on the edge of their seat. They were watching the counts, the recounts taking place. They were waiting for a final announcement of who had won. And then, on Saturday of that week, the results were finally announced. Joe Biden had won the election. He would be the next president. When Jesus began his ministry, the nation of Israel, they also were waiting to hear news. For several hundred years, the Jewish people had been a conquered nation. They had been under the thumb of one ruler after another. Now it happened to be the Romans who were in charge. But many of the Jewish people were convinced that at some point, and many felt like it wouldn't be long, God would step in and set things right. The prophecies of the Old Testament, these would finally be fulfilled. The day of the Lord would take place. At this time, God would intervene in history to place Israel at the head of the nations. When Jesus began his public ministry, he began by announcing, The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus was telling them, What you've been looking for, this event has finally arrived. God is now intervening in human history to set things right. Jesus was announcing the gospel, the good news, that the kingdom of heaven is here. And he spends the next three years teaching the people about this kingdom. And even more importantly, he spends it living out the kingdom in front of them. Jesus wanted them to understand what this kingdom truly was. As N.T. Wright defines it, the kingdom of heaven is the idea that the one true God has now taken hold of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. He has taken hold of the world to fulfill his covenant, to make all of his creation new. And this new creation will take full effect at the final resurrection. But until then, Every single person can be caught up in that transformation, here and now. John the Baptist was the first to come with the message that the kingdom of heaven is near. But he told them, he said, there's one coming after me. He will be the one to set all things right. And then Jesus appears, and he confirms John's message. The kingdom of heaven has finally arrived. But a problem soon arose. There were many in Jesus' day. They had their own ideas of what the kingdom should be. 
In today's lesson, we want to look at those in Jesus' day who opposed Him, who opposed His kingdom. We want to look at the results of their opposition, and all of this should provide a lesson, a warning to us. What happens when we find ourselves opposing the kingdom of heaven? Our text comes from Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at specific verses, starting with verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Skipping down to verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, when he started his ministry, he began at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he arrived there, he opened up the scriptures and he read to them a, pro a prophecy from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Jewish people that heard Jesus, they were very familiar with this scripture. They had heard it many times before. But Jesus then tells them, the fulfillment of this prophecy, it's happening here and now. Jesus is telling them, I am this Messiah, this anointed one, the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. Now, the idea of a Messiah, this was not new to the Jewish people. They had been looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah for centuries. And in Jesus' day, many were convinced that it would happen soon. Jesus was not the first to claim this title as Messiah. There had been false messiahs before Jesus, there would be false messiahs after Jesus. But Jesus was presenting proof that they were finding hard to deny. He was doing things that they had never seen before. When Jesus healed the man who was born blind, that man tells the Pharisees, no one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. When Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the men with him on the boat exclaim, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. After Jesus had healed the, the mute and deaf man from Decapolis, he tells those watching, he says, don't say anything about this. 
But Scripture tells us the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So the news about Jesus began to build, and crowds were flocking to see Jesus for themselves. All of them were asking the question, Is this the Messiah, the one we're expecting? But Jesus was presenting a Messiah that few of them actually did expect. Jesus was revealing a kingdom that they didn't understand. And opposition begins to form. Opposition from those who have a different idea of what the Messiah should be. Now, these opponents were not those we might expect. It wasn't the Roman government who was opposing Jesus. It wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners. Instead, it was the religious leaders themselves, those that we would expect to be the biggest supporters of Jesus. And in fact, for a while, it even included Jesus' own family. It was the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees. It was the Pharisees. And we really need to understand who the Pharisees were to understand the full opposition to Jesus. The name Pharisee means separated one. A Pharisee was one who had taken on a commitment to allow devotion to the law to consume his life, to dedicate his life to keeping the law as perfectly as possible, and teaching others to do the same. The Pharisees had a specific reason for this. Their understanding was that the Messiah would come but only when the nation was sufficiently dedicated to keeping the law. If the people weren't zealous enough for the law, if they compromised, if they weren't 100% devoted to the law, the Messiah would not come. So they saw their role to keep the law perfectly, every single law given to Moses. And by doing this, they were hoping to create a society that was sufficiently righteous so that the Messiah would finally arrive. They stressed knowing and keeping the written law given to Moses, but also the oral law, the rules that made sure you were in full obedience. And they also promoted the traditions of, of their fathers, uh, traditions like prayer and fasting and giving to the poor. In fact, there was a sect among the Pharisees that believed if they could keep the law perfectly for 24 hours, this would prompt God to send the Messiah. Now, Jesus offered severe criticism of the Pharisees, and it was well-deserved. By Jesus' day, this commitment to the law had led to legalism, self-righteousness, to an external piety, but an internal corruption, as Jesus described it. They were tombs that were whitewashed and clean on the outside, but inside full of rotting bones. But the Pharisees did have a lot to commend them. So we have to ask ourselves, why would a group like this, those who had given their lives to following the law, to purifying society, why would they oppose Jesus? And what's also surprising to us, this opposition included his own family, his mother, his brothers. At one point, they too opposed Jesus. They felt like they needed to get control of Jesus for Jesus' own good. 
So today we want to look at three ideas. Why did these groups oppose Jesus? What were the dangers, the consequences of this? And what warnings can we take away from this lesson? So to begin, let's look at those who oppose Jesus. You know, they ask four key questions of Jesus, and these questions symbolized their opposition. It shows us why they were so opposed. The first question they ask is, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jewish society in Jesus' day was strictly divided between those that kept the law, those seen as righteous, and those who broke the law. Among those who kept the law, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were at the very top. These were the ones who were doing the best job of keeping the law. They were considered the most righteous. Below them would be the mass of what we might think of as good church people. These were people who followed the law, but maybe not as devotedly or as strictly as the religious leaders. But then there were those who were not following the law, the prostitutes, the sinners, those who were collaborating with the Romans, such as the tax collectors. They were seen as unrighteous, as wicked, in fact. If the Jewish people were going to be God's covenant people, if they were going to be the people of the law, if they were going to be zealous for God's law, it was important that anyone who was not sufficiently zealous, anyone who did not follow the law, they needed to be explicitly condemned. And yet, here was Jesus. One day he's eating with the Pharisees. The next day he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus seemed to be saying that there was no distinction, that the kingdom of heaven was for all of them. They felt like this blurred the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And as a result, people might become lax in their keeping of the law. The second question was, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, fasting was not a commandment. It wasn't a requirement of the law, but it was a tradition. Fasting was required of pious Jews. If Jesus took away this emphasis on fasting, would the people lose some of their zealousness for the law? And also, the Pharisees took a lot of pride in their fasting. They wanted everyone to know when they were fasting, to know the sacrifices they were making for keeping the law, to be righteous Jews. And now Jesus seemed to be saying, this is not really what it's all about. The third question was, why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, they said this after the disciples were picking grain as they walked along on the Sabbath. This was not a violation of the written law, the Torah, the laws given to Moses. It was a violation of the oral law. The oral law had been set up as a guide, a set of rules that enabled you to keep the written law fully. For example, the written law said, honor the Sabbath day by not doing any work. The oral law came along and then said, okay, what is work? Well, you should avoid doing this and this and this. So to the Pharisees, it was just as important to keep the oral law as it was the written law. The oral law helped them to make sure that they were keeping 
the full written law. Now, the oral law had so many requirements, it was almost impossible for the average Jewish person to keep it. These people were simply busy trying to survive. It was impossible to keep all of the rituals. So, keeping the oral laws meant that the Pharisees could validate their own special status as the righteous people. They could maintain a superiority over everyone else. Now, these three questions that we've seen so far, these demonstrate that Jesus was acting in ways that confused the religious leaders, ways they felt, in fact, were dangerous. It seemed to weaken the devotion, the zealousness for the law. Jesus was excusing sinners and tax collectors, downplaying the the traditions that they had, contradicting the oral law. All of these, in fact, may have started with good intentions from the Pharisees' point of view. They wanted to keep the zealousness, the devotion of the people to the law. They wanted to keep the people from compromising and falling away. But now, the the practices of the Pharisees, these had been twisted and perverted. They were producing a society where everything was about the outward appearance, but the heart remained untouched. As Jesus described it in Matthew 15, they had become a people who honored God with their lips while their hearts were far from Him. And this was definitely not the kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. In addition to these three questions, there was one final question that really got to the heart of the matter. This question was, who can forgive sins but God alone? A paralyzed man had been brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed the man, but he also told him, he said, your sins are forgiven. When the religious leaders heard Jesus say this, they immediately recognized what it meant. The only one who who can forgive sins is God himself. Jesus, by taking this authority, is making himself equal to God. The question that had to be answered was, who exactly was Jesus? When Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? The disciples responded, some think you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some think you might be one of the other prophets. Jesus then forces the issue by asking the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? Peter answered with the only possible answer. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus tells this man, your sins are forgiven, he was sending a very specific message, one that the religious leaders understood all too well. Jesus was saying, I'm not merely God's servant. I'm not just another of the prophets, not even a second coming of the great Elijah himself, but I am the Son of God. So, These questions show us the religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat. First, there was a feeling that Jesus was a threat to the nation as a whole. In John 11, we're told that the Pharisees and the chief priests call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Their problem, as they explained it, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple 
and our nation. There were two main things that they feared. The first was that the Romans would hear about Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And the Romans would believe that a rebellion was taking place. Now, there was a history of this. There had been repeated Jewish rebellions in the past. This was a time of a lot of unrest. The Romans would have been on their guard. And when the Romans detected rebellion, they reacted with force. It was put down with a heavy hand. In fact, around the time Jesus was born, in 4 B.C., the Roman emperor, Varus, crucified 2,000 Jewish people. So, mass crucifixions throughout the first century were actually pretty common. Now, up to now, the Romans had worked out an arrangement with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish religious leaders were free to control the temple, the religious festivals, to enforce the Jewish religious law. They could do all of this as they saw fit, as long as the people stayed calm, under control, paying their taxes, as long as they were cooperating with the Roman occupation. But a rebellion would threaten all of this, and the Romans might step in. Now, the religious authorities were also afraid that a zealousness for the law might be lost. They were anticipating the day of the Messiah, when God would step in and set everything right. And this would not happen if the people were half-hearted in their devotion, their dedication to the law. When they saw that Jesus didn't require his disciples to follow the traditions, he didn't enforce the strict observance of the oral law, that Jesus was teaching them a new way of understanding God's kingdom, they feared that the people might sink back into ignoring the law. The day of the Lord would be farther off than ever. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he gives them justification for what they should do. Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So, there was a fear for the nation as a whole. But Scripture also makes it plain. Many of these religious leaders had their own personal reasons for rejecting Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their pride and selfish interest. Now, they could wrap their opposition to Jesus in patriotic motives and religious motives, but when it came down to it, really it's more personal. We can see ourselves in this. A lot of times we justify what we want to do by claiming a higher motive. But it was personal because the kingdom Jesus was implementing was a threat to their pride. Jesus was allowing tax collectors allowing sinners into this kingdom. He was making these people, the lowest in society, to be the equal of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests. In Jesus' kingdom, there were no group of spiritually elite. And as Jesus made plain, many of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were using their obedience to show how holy and self-righteous they were. They like to be known for their long prayers, for their gifts to the poor, for their fasting. They wanted to be recognized in the temple, given the most important seats in the synagogues. If Jesus welcomed everyone into the kingdom, what happened to their special status? 
Now, it was also personal. It was a threat because the kingdom Jesus was implementing was a threat to their selfish interest as well. The Romans were the ones in ultimate control, but they had worked out a system with the religious leaders. The religious leaders were allowed to govern most of the day-to-day life of the people. This meant that the religious leaders, especially the Sadducees, they made money and they had political power. For example, they controlled the temple with the sacrifices. They controlled the synagogues. Now, this brought a lot of money under their control, but it also brought political power. They had the ability to cut off, to excommunicate those who opposed them. Jesus would later compare those that ran the temple to robbers, saying they were enriching themselves by gouging the people. So, there were reasons for opposing Jesus, and a lot of it boiled down to the fact that they saw Jesus as a threat to their position in the community, to their status, their place. But what was the result of this opposition? What happened when they opposed Jesus? The ironic thing is, the Pharisees, the group who had committed themselves to keeping every tiny part of the law, they find themselves breaking one of the most basic of the commandments, thou shalt not kill. Their refusal to accept Jesus led them to depths that they never would have thought possible. It led them to becoming people they never dreamed they could become. Jesus warned in Matthew 6.23, If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here we find Jesus giving two specific warnings, first to his family and then to the teachers of the law. These are warnings that should make us stop and think today. Warnings of what opposition to him really meant. First, to his family, Jesus warns them, You can forfeit your relationship to me. You can lose the connection that we have. Now, Jesus' family had heard about everything that was happening. The attention that Jesus was attracting from the crowds and the opposition that was forming from the religious leaders. They knew how dangerous this situation was, and they decided they needed to come and get control of Jesus. Jesus was acting irrationally. He was on a dangerous course that would end in tragedy. When they arrived where Jesus was, they find him surrounded by the crowds, so they send word to him. Now, obviously, They expected Jesus to come out to them. After all, they were his family, his own flesh and blood. But Jesus doesn't go out to them. Instead, he turns to those around him and he says, Who are my mother and brothers? Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will, this is my brother, sister, and mother. So Jesus is warning his family. The blood ties that we share, these are not enough. If you will not do the will of the Father, if you won't accept the kingdom that the Father is bringing about through Jesus, then you can be replaced by those who do God's will. The family was presuming upon their relationship with Jesus, the idea that their kinship gave them a special relationship, that Jesus uh, or that they had uh, this relationship to enjoy. Jesus was saying, no, 
The kingdom doesn't work like this. In the kingdom, it's not a matter of birth, but it's a matter of obedience. Now, how often do we in the church presume that we have a special relationship with Christ? That because we have been in the church maybe for years, because we have been Christians for years, that somehow we are in a position to control or to manage the kingdom, that we somehow have the right to fashion the kingdom in the way that we want it to be, to decide the parts that we like and the parts that we don't. Jesus is telling us, no, the key factor to being part of my kingdom is obedience. Now, the good thing is that we learn Jesus' family, his mother and brothers, they do keep their relationship with Jesus. We know that his mother and at least some of his brothers are important core members of the early church. His mother is present at the cross. She's also there at Pentecost. One of his brothers is named in Acts as a leader of the church. So we know that they must have taken his warning to heart. We also see Jesus warning the teachers of the law here. Now, the teachers of the law could not deny the miracles that Jesus was doing. They had to admit Jesus was doing things that no one else had ever done. But instead of accepting this as proof of who Jesus was, they accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In effect, they were saying, you're not doing miracles through the power of God. You're driving out demons only because you have a stronger demon. Jesus warns them about committing a very specific sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he warns them this sin is unforgivable. It's an, it's an eternal sin. There are a lot of misconceptions about this today. There's speculation about what exactly blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And Satan, a lot of times, will use fear over this issue to torment, to convince people that they've committed this sin and therefore they are doomed. But we can't really think of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as some single act that we do, that somehow we've managed to do something so horrible that God washes his hands of us, something so evil that God says, that's it, I will not forgive that. Blasphemy against the Spirit is more of an attitude that we adopt, an attitude in which we reject the work of the Holy Spirit, an ongoing rebellion against what the Holy Spirit is doing, a refusal to recognize and admit the truth. In Scripture, we're taught that the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring spiritual light and knowledge. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. John 16, verses 7 and 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, God has revealed to us these things by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So we can see the Holy Spirit provides the only way to the Father. We cannot approach God in any other way. Scripture makes it plain. We don't approach God on our terms, but on His terms. Blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable because 
The Spirit is the one who reveals the truth about Jesus to us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To reject Jesus, then, is to commit an eternal sin, one that can't be forgiven because you are refusing the very way of forgiveness. As Melanie Lewis describes blasphemy against the Spirit, it's the malicious resistance against the Holy Spirit's converting power after we are shown that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus is warning the teachers of the law, and through them, Jesus is giving us a warning. By rejecting the kingdom as established in Christ, by rejecting Christ as God's Messiah, we are placing ourselves in a position beyond hope, a place of eternal sin, of eternal unforgiveness. Now, we look at this warning a lot of times and we dismiss it. We never really stop to think of ourselves as those who are rejecting God's truth. But how often do we do exactly that? We pick, we choose which parts of the gospel we will be obedient to, and we reserve the right to ignore the parts that we don't like. James Mitchell edited a book that he titled, The God I Want. In this book, nine different authors sketch out their view of what the ideal God should be. Now, many of us fall into the same trap. We want to design a God to fit our lifestyle. Many times, we're comfortable with the way we're living. We don't want to be challenged or changed. We've got things worked out. We want a God who approves of what we're doing, of what we've already put into place. Jesus warns us over and over that in the kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. And in Matthew 7, 22, Jesus gives a warning that may surprise us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know, we tend to blow right past this without really hearing what it says. This is telling us it's possible to do miracles in Jesus' name, even to cast out demons and yet be rejected as part of Christ's kingdom. So as we look at this, how do we apply this to our lives? The literal, the literal translation for the term gospel is good news. The news that God had interrupted human history. God had established his kingdom on this earth. God was in the process of making all things new, of bringing about his new creation. The powers of darkness, the powers of evil, these had been conquered. When we hear this, we think, how could this not be good news? How could anyone object to this? As N.T. Wright expresses it, the one true God is on the move again. He has overcome all the powers of the world, the dark powers that enslave and corrupt and destroy genuine human life. But yet, we find religious leaders, those who should have been the most eager to see the Messiah, 
those who had devoted their lives to preparing for the Messiah. These are the ones who wind up opposing him. And so really it should make us stop and think. Those of us who are in the church, who consider ourselves Christians, have we truly accepted the Lordship of Christ? Are we welcoming his full rule in our lives? Or do we find ourselves, in fact, actually opposing Christ, opposing his kingdom? The gospel presents a very specific promise that God has begun to transform us, and through us, he will eventually transform all of his creation. Because of what Christ has done, we have access to a life of resurrection and power. We have access to a life where we no longer need to live under the oppression of sin. We have a life in the Spirit, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. As Paul describes it in Philippians 2, where you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and perverse generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Through Christ, we are promised a life that we really find hard to believe, a life where all things are possible. But we end up settling for much less than the kingdom that Christ has come to put into effect. We resist the full kingdom of Christ because we see it as a threat. Satan lies to us. Somehow, he manages to convince us that the good news is not really that good. That somehow, under Christ's kingdom, we end up worse off. That we miss out on things we could have. In the garden, the serpent convinced Eve that God was cheating her. The serpent told her, when God tells you not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, He's doing this not to help you, but to keep you away from being godlike as he is. Satan continues his lies today. He convinces us that a life fully surrendered to Christ, that this will end up being a life of sacrifice, a life where we don't get what we want, a life with the fun, the excitement, the pleasure drained out of it. And somehow we end up buying into this. The idea that if we fully embrace God's Christ's kingdom, if we obey him totally, somehow we will end up with stunted lives, lives less than what they could be. We don't really trust that God's way is the key to abundant life. And sometimes the church has been at fault in this because we've sent the message that when we become Christians, we sacrifice the pleasures so that we'll get to go to heaven. We give up what makes life fun now so that we can get eternal pleasure later. But this is not the message of the gospel. The gospel says it's only as part of the kingdom of Christ, only under the lordship of Christ, that you can have true fullness of life, that you can have a life where all things work together for good, a life where you can say with Paul, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. If you embrace Christ in his kingdom, you can live a life far beyond what you ever thought possible. I hope that you'll take this to heart, 
that you'll look at your life and ask yourself, am I opposing what Christ wants to do? Am I opposing becoming a full part of the kingdom of Christ? And then that you'll allow the Spirit to correct you, to make you into all that God, through Christ, intends for you to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture that we've read today. We thank you for your full plan of salvation, for this gospel message that you have sent your Son into the world to allow us to be full members of your kingdom, to be transformed, and that through us you will transform all of your creation. We ask that you would help us to not oppose your kingdom, but to surrender to accept everything that you have for us. We give you the praise in your name. Amen.